This morning we have the privilege to have instant access to the God of the universe. It's an overwhelming thing. Sometimes we just think of, you know, prayer and we don't really think of the significance of what an amazing thing that God can hear all of us at the same time, wherever we are in the world. So this morning, this morning if we could all kneel before him as we... Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of prayer, that we can come before you with our cares, with our desires, with our confession, and with our joys and requests. We thank you that you can hear us no matter where we are, and we thank you for the promise that your Holy Spirit will intercede for us because we don't even know what we need and we don't even know what to ask. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would help our minds to be clear and open to receive the message that you have prepared for us. And we ask that you would be with Elaine as she speaks, that you would be able to use her as the channel to share the message that you have this morning. Lord, we all want to be filled with joy, for we know that you say that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So help us to have joy in our hearts and then to let it show on our faces so that we can represent you in the right way to the world around us. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayers and ask that you would be with each family represented here. We thank you for the blessing of the beautiful weather that we have had and the opportunity to come together before you this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What a beautiful day God has given us to be faithful, right? There's one challenge we face at Indiana Family Camp. And it's really going to be a challenge for me this morning because... It's a liability because we have people here who've been to Oklahoma family camp, who have been to Colorado family camp, who've been to New Jersey family camp, and Virginia family camp, and California family camp. And what I'm going to do this morning in the message is I have some little scenarios happening, some stories happening, and I want you to think who those people are, but I don't want all of you previous camp attendees earlier this year to spill the beans. You know what I mean by that? Children, right? Don't shout out the answer. Because for many people, this is the very first opportunity they've had to be at family camp this year. And we want to make it just as fun and surprising and special for them as it was for you when you first heard this message, okay? So I'm asking for you all to cooperate with that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think I've covered all the camps I've seen people at this year. I may have missed one, but uh, anyway, that's just a little request at the beginning of the message. And today we're going to be talking about faithfulness. Do we want to be faithful? What do we want to be faithful to? To God, okay, people who've been here before, I mean to the other camps, you can answer those questions, okay? I just don't want you to give me the answers to the the individual story people or some of the other illustrations we're going to do here this morning. So yes, we want to be faithful to God, right? Do we want to live with him forever? Are we unanimous in that? Amen. Okay, so we want to be faithful, and I have found in my own experience that sometimes we put so much energy, so much grit, so much determination in trying to be faithful that we are miserable. And I know without even asking you that that has been the experience of many in this room. And so we want to look at how can we be faithful, but have faithfulness with joy. That it's it's a 
pleasure. It's, it's a happy life. It's something that we would not want to give up because it is the happiest, most peaceful, contented, fulfilling life we've ever had because we are learning how to walk with God in the joy of his presence. And so today, we're going to look at this topic of faithfulness and it's going to, it's, it's sort of a parenting message. It's sort of an adult message. It's sort of an everybody fits into the message message, okay? So even if you're quite young children, I want you to think about this because some of the things I'm going to say is speaking directly to you. And some of you moms and dads, it's speaking to you, to me. And some of you older people, it's speaking to you as well. So what does it mean to be faithful? And anybody can answer these questions, okay? So we would like to see hands. Give me some words, some adjectives that mean faithful. Pardon? To be accountable. Dependable, okay. And accountable, dependable. Faithful and dependable. Those kind of go together. Any, any other definitions of faithfulness? Loyal, thank you. Loyalty, dependability. I have a few more on my list. Responsible. If your mother children ask you to clean the kitchen for her while she is taking care of your baby brother, what is she going to look for in the kitchen when she comes back in? Pardon? That it's clean, right? That means... That means, children, there is no little foodies stuck in the sink trap. That's a little thing. The counters can be wiped. The table can be cleared. All the leftovers can be in the fridge. And you can actually have all the dishes put away. But if there's foodies in the trap of the sink, ugh. And that is a problem that most of us have. It is a problem that we had in our home. And it is something that we worked very faithfully to overcome that one little piece of the kitchen. To be thoroughly done. To be responsible. To be loyal to the job. To be honest in our work. To be unwavering. All of those are simple words to define the concept of faithfulness. Then we look in the dictionary and it has an interesting definition. Faithfulness is firm adherence. Firm adherence. It means it it doesn't come apart, right? Inseparable. Firm adherence to the truth. Faithfulness is firm adherence to the truth, but it doesn't stop there. And to the duties of religion. Or we can say the duties of truth. Or to put it in more modern terminology, we can say to the living out of the truth, right? In our lives. Desire of Ages, page 306, says it this way. Bible religion... Faithfulness, Bible religion, is to sanctify our daily life, to manifest itself in every business transaction. That means the sink in the kitchen, right? That's a responsibility. That may mean a contract. That may mean plowing the field. It may whatever you your station is in life. That that true Bible religion will manifest itself. In every transaction of life, all of the duties of life and all of our social relations. That means it's not just what we do, what our occupation is, or getting our schoolwork done. It means how we interact with whoever we come in contact. In our own families, in our workplace, or in school, wherever that may be. So we see the importance of faithfulness. And really, I think for the group here today, it's not so much that we don't know what we should do. 
The problem we have is that we don't always like to do what we should do. Anybody ever have that experience? Oh, just five or six people? I could raise both hands. Even with all I know and all of experience and the joy I find in Christ, sometimes I still don't always like to do what I know I should do. But here is an important factor because it is not enough to be faithful. Because trying to be faithful to duty or what is right without Christ becomes a very miserable existence. And so what happens to you is the same thing that happens to me. And I'm going to read some little scenarios here. These are sentences, simple sentences, some of which I have said, some of which I have thought, and some of which you or others like you have said to me. And let's start evaluating how we are going through our Christian life as faithful. Because I think many go through our Christian walk with no joy. And so we make statements like this. And what I want you to do is do a mental tally. Keep track mentally. Have I said that? And I have quite a few here I'm going to share this morning, but I have in no way made an exhaustive list. In fact, I could probably write a 30-page book of these types of statements that either I have thought, said, or have had said to me that turn the faithfulness into a drudgery, dry unhappy existence. And we're talking about faithfulness here is having true Bible, the principles of the Bible, be the foundation of who we are and how we interact and how we operate in life. So I want you to think about these. I'm not going to ask you how many did you say or you think, this is private, so you're off the hook, to be public. Here's the first one. It's so hard to keep up the house and children. My husband is never home. It's so hard to be a good dad. I never had a role model. It's so hard to homeschool my three children. I feel like I just can't keep up with things. It's so hard to keep the house in order when my husband won't help me. Help me, that's right. I hope he doesn't pick up part of what I'm saying. (laughs) Because this little boy, Levi, up here on the front row is like a sponge absorbing vocabulary. So forgive me if he picks up the wrong intention here. (laughs) Okay. It's so hard to get my kids to respect me when my wife constantly contradicts me. It's so hard to raise an only child. It's so hard to get my child to obey me. He is so strong-willed. It's so hard to have worship with a teen and a toddler. This math lesson is too hard. It's so hard to listen to arguing all day long. It's so hard being the only one at school without an iPhone. Now we chuckle at that. But we're not chuckling on the other comments, are we? Could be because they're too familiar, maybe. My daughter was not invited to a sleepover at her friend's house. It's so hard to see her left out. I thought I might hear an amen on that one. Thank you. Praise the Lord. She was left out, right? 
Let's not feel sorry for our child. Let's help our child to say, you know what? That's not a bad thing, right? All right, because there's some pretty strong counsel written in the book Child Guidance regarding that topic. Okay, here's another one. It's so hard to trust my husband's judgment. He is not the spiritual leader. It's so hard to live in a small house. My boys have to share the same room. It's so hard to keep a schedule. It's so hard when your in-laws don't like you. It's so hard, and this one kind of sums it up, the whole, all of these passages, all of these sentences. It's so hard to be a Christian. So children, what did you hear me say over and over and over again in those statements? It's so hard. Have we ever said anything like that? Of course we have. We've all said things like that. Those examples come from children, they come from adults, they come from seniors, they come from singles, they come from all of us. It's so hard. Well, I would like to share with you some simple principles from God's word that have helped me to not look at how hard something is, but to rather get the focus in the right area. Psalm 16, verse 11. We want to be faithful, but we need to be, have faithfulness with joy. That's the emphasis, is the joy part of the equation, right? Psalm 16, verse 11 says, Thou will show me the path of life. And that's what we've been talking about. We know the duty. We know the truth. We know the path. God's illuminated the path, right? But we forget the rest of the verse. In thy presence is fullness of joy. When we try to go on and live the Christian life, walk on the path to our heavenly home without the presence of Christ, it is a very difficult and hard thing, right? So when we recognize and we find ourselves thinking these kind of thoughts or saying these kind of things in our home, in front of our children, to our husband, to our wife, or to whoever it may be, a brother or sister at church or, you know, a relative or whoever it may be, if we are saying these things, it's because we are lacking the presence of Christ. And I appreciated the prayer this morning because this, the part of the prayer was taken from Nehemiah 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So we know that if we are abiding with Christ, if we are in the presence of Christ, if we have invited Christ to be and to be the Lord and master of our hearts, when we go into our day and we face the things that come to us in the day, we can be faithful to the duties, to the relationships that we encounter in the day, and we can be faithful with joy because we have the presence of God abiding with us. And in him, we're told, is fullness of joy. That is how Nehemiah was successful. Did Nehemiah face some hard things? Right? How many of you would like to have a few very... uh, influential, powerful people just outside the wall planning your demise and you're up there trying to get and motivate all these people to get this, what seems to be an impossible job done to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's focus was not on the adversary. It was not on the bigness of the task. His focus and his his. Vision was of doing the will of God in God's power. Was he successful? Absolutely. In a phenomenally short period of time. And just through his influence motivated the entire group living there in Jerusalem to be faithful in the task at hand. So that they were there to build 
or to fight whichever was necessary to defend their city. So here we find, again, Psalm 1611, God will show us the path of life. But it's in his presence we find the fullness of joy. It's through God's presence with us that we experience his joy that gives us the strength to accomplish it. And we need to really put these two scriptures, the next two scriptures, into the forefront of our thinking. The first one is found in Matthew 19, 26, and it says, With God all... All what? All things are possible. We know it, right? We could recite it. You could even maybe tell me book, chapter, and verse. But it gets buried somehow, and we try to live life without recognizing where the power and strength comes from. With God, all things are possible. When we have that as, as the forefront, at the forefront of our thoughts, when we encounter difficulties, we are not going to be falling into, it's so hard. You know what happens when we say, it's so hard? It really is hard. And most of the times when we find things very hard, we don't do very well, do we? Or we don't do it at all. Or we make a mess of it. And we are oftentimes very unhappy in the process. Another scripture we need to keep in the forefront of our mind. I can do all things. That little word all appears in both verses. All in all. I can do all things. And I love the way the scripture writes it. I, that means every time, that, that, that word I, that simple little one letter, means every single one of us in this room. Because we're all eyes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthen us because in Christ is our fullness of joy and it is through Christ that he gives us the power to obey, the power to accomplish, the power to conquer, the power to overcome, the power to be successful to his duties, his will, his way for our lives. So we have to get our focus off of the problem And we need to focus on the power. We need to stop looking at the circumstances and start looking at Christ. We need to stop seeing how hard it is and see the help that God has offered us to accomplish it. And we need to stop looking at our trials and start trusting God that through him all things are possible. So I'm going to share with you some characters, individuals who've lived some time since this world was created. I want you, I'm going to give you little synopsises from their lives, and I would like you to think who I'm talking about. And this is where I'm asking all of those of you who have been to any other Restoration International Family Camp this year, because you already know the answers. I see a girl smiling back there. Just don't blurt it out, please. Let the people here who are here for the first time be able to share who they think these individuals are, okay? So I'm going to give you a little synopsis from the lives of three individuals. Three children and three mothers, okay? Three children Three mothers. So really we're talking about six people, but really I'm looking for the names of the children because we don't necessarily know the names of the parents, okay, or the mother. Okay, I want you to think about the circumstances, and I want you to think about how many times this last week you may have said or thought, it's just too hard. Because I really believe that we need a new perspective on life. So here's the first scenario, the first little story I want to share with you. This little boy had two siblings. That really narrows it down right away, right? Because now you know there's three children in the family. This little boy has two siblings. His mother is a single parent. They live in poverty. 
Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room who really lives in poverty. And as I describe the setting that this little boy grew up in, none of us even come close to fitting this category. So this little boy um, had two siblings, had a single mama, single parent home, lived in abject poverty. His mother was ignorant. You know what that word ignorant means, children? We use that word today in a very distasteful way. We make people think that they're dumb when we call them ignorant. But really, ignorant in the context here means they just didn't, they weren't educated, okay? It wasn't that the mother was dumb, it's just she did not have an education. There's a very big difference. Because here, as we look through the biography, and as I read some of these excerpts from it, we find that this mother, who was ignorant by societal standards, was ambitious for her children. She wanted them to have more than she had. She wanted them to reach their full potential. She wanted them to be successful. She wanted them to be honest, to be good, to be happy, to be dependable, to be truthful. Those were her ambitions. And this mother had a good heart and a lot of common sense. So this mother was not ignorant the way we use the term flippantly today. This mother simply was not, did not have the opportunity or the privilege of an education. She could not read or write. And actually, this mother was a slave in the United States of America. So now you know, children, that we're not talking about the year 2010, are we? We're going back to the 1800s. This little boy was born in 1856 during slavery. His mother was a slave. You know what a slave means, children? Does that mean they can do what they want to do? Yes, what does a slave mean? You have to do something. You have no rights. You just have to do what somebody tells you to do. And slavery in those days, a single mother with three children, all her children were little. They were too young to go to work with the mother. Because she was a slave, she didn't have choices. She didn't have control of her life. She was told when she needed to be out there in the fields to work, when she could take a break, if at all, when she could eat lunch, whatever that may be, and when she could go home. So that mother left her children all day long unattended, except this mother rose up very early in the morning, and she woke up her three children. And before she had to be at the dawn, okay, dawn here, what time? Six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning? In the summer, what time does it get light here? 5, 5.30 in the morning? Maybe, you know, in the summertime, she's out working in the plantations, 5.30 in the morning. So picture this mother getting up maybe 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, getting up her three little children. We know they had to be small because slave children worked on, out in the plantations too. As soon as they had enough, you know, size to them, maybe six or seven, they were going out into the fields. So these were young children, and she would wake up early, she would spend time with them, and she taught them two things every day. And these are the two things that this mother, who was very wise, not ignorant, taught her children to be obedient and respectful, powerful. We talked to, Mrs. Rain talked yesterday morning about the first lesson we are to teach our children is a lesson of is what? Lesson of obedience. That's what this mother was doing. Little children, early in the morning, and then she would not see those children all day long. Now, that didn't mean that they, those children had nothing to do. We're going to move into where they lived. They lived in a 14 by 16 cabin, and I had my friend Samuel here. He helped me. That's probably roughly about half the size of this platform. That was their home. Some of your bedrooms are bigger than that. That was their home. And the children slept on the floor, 
on a mat made with stuffed with dirty rags. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have power. And they didn't have hardly anything to exist with. Life was more than basic, right? Even for you tenters here, and I know it's a challenge, and I don't like camping in the cold because I'm a pansy, but imagine your hardships here and then try to place yourself there. So this mother worked long hours. She rose up early, taught her children to obey her and obey those around them, those who had authority over them, their slave masters, and she taught them to be respectful. So the little boy now we want to focus on, because he was too little to go to the plantations, he was not just left at home to play all day. One of his jobs was to get the horse that the plantation owner had and to take it to a mill where, they, where he could get sacks of grain. Now, he was too little. Maybe he was four or five. Any children four or five here? Can you put your hand up? Four or five. Who's very good? And let me, I can't remember her name. Katie, that's right, Katie. Just suppose that every morning, you were, or once a week, you would get this big horse, and you would take that horse and walk for miles all by yourself with a big horse to the mill to get grain. And there the, the man who owned the uh, mill would throw the big sacks of grain on the back of the horse, and he'd pick you up and put you on the back of the horse, and you could ride the horse home. Wouldn't that be nice? Not sure, are you? The problem was that oftentimes, if you've ever had a sack of grain or a sack of oats or something like that, if you don't have the weight evenly distributed, you know what happens when the horse is walking like this? The weight starts to shift, and the heavy side of the sack, even though it's slightly heavier than the other side, begins to go down and down, and pretty soon, the whole thing would fall off the back of the horse, and the child would fall off too. And there he would sit in the road. The biography says sometimes for hours, hours, waiting for someone to pass by who would be kind enough to lift him up and put him on the back of the horse with the grain, or at least get the grain on the horse so he could go back to the plantation and finish his responsibilities. This little boy, as he got older, saw another boy reading a newspaper. And he saw that. He, he had heard it was called a newspaper. Think about that. We know words, and we just automatically have a picture, right? This little boy was told that's a newspaper. He wanted to read it because he was so intrigued that this other boy could read, and he, well, whatever reading means, and he could, he could see these little black marks, and he could tell what those things said. So he went home one day, and he says, Mother, I would like to learn to read. Well, guess what? Slave boys weren't taught to read, were they? They weren't given the privilege of education, but he wanted to read so bad. And so somehow, the biography says, his mother, after some time, was so desirous to help her little boy that she finally was able to get a book for him. Can you imagine the joy in that mother's heart? To give her son a book something he wanted, something he desired, something that was almost impossible for a slave to get. And she gave him this little book. It was a primer. Primer means it was like a first-grade reader, basics. And he was so excited, and he opened the cover of the book. But guess what? There were just black marks all over it, black marks. And what would you call them, children? Children. Words or ABCs. He didn't know what that would even to call them words. He didn't even know to call them letters. He didn't even know to call them ABCs. So now I'm going to ask for my helpers to come up. I have Saritha. Very good. Here she comes. Hannah Slaughter. I had to put the last name on Hannah because there's more than one Hannah here. And I've asked Dominic if you'll come up and help me, please, quickly. I want you to enter in with what this little boy was going through. So I've asked for some nice young volunteers here. Would you stand right here? Please, Aretha. 
And I'm going to give you that word. This is where I want you previous camp people to dominate. There you go. Hannah right here. To just not say too much. Okay, so here we see what? What do you see? Words. You see letters and words. And who can read this for me? Okay. Go ahead. You've never seen those word, those letters made like that, have you? Okay, just together. Just say what you think it should. Everybody read together. Wow, I am so impressed. You have scored 100%. 100% on pronunciation. La Tuanini Dusa. Now, how, who can tell me what it means of the new people here this year? Come on. Who, who tells me what it means? You have no idea, do you? Does it spike your curiosity? No? Okay. Thank you, Daniel. The point is, we know the letters. We, know, we can even enunciate them correctly because we know how to say things phonetically. We, we, we're educated, right? But we have no clue what it means. And that's what it was like for the little boy. He opened the book and he had no idea what it meant. I'll tell you what it means. Now you're going to have your first lesson in Mosquito Indian. A small little indigenous group of Indians that live in the southeastern corner of Honduras, the northeastern corner of Nicaragua. And I spent a year in the mission field there thinking I was going to learn Spanish. I was so excited. Got in the jungles with the Indians and I learned Mosquito Indian. A really impractical language to learn unless you live in this small group of people. And so the word latuan means love. Isn't that nice, Hannah? Love. Nini, head. Dusa. No, sorry. Latuan, love. Nini, me. Dusa is head. Here we go. Now I got it straight. I got myself reversed here. So we could say, I have love in my head. Or we could say, I am lovesick. You like that? Or we would just say, I am simply in love. That's how we would say it in our language, right? But that's not when people came to the clinic. They didn't come in saying, oh, I'm in love. They came to the clinic saying, Latuan also means pain. Isn't that interesting? Love and pain. So when they came in the clinic and they said Latuan, they weren't talking about how much love they had. They were talking about how much pain they had. I have a pain in my head. Or we would say, my head hurts, or I have a headache. Thank you, you've been great helpers. They did a great job, didn't they? Thank you. So I use it, thank you very much. I use this to illustrate that that's what it was like for this little boy. He wanted to learn. So his mother helped him find his mother, I want to go to school. By this time, slavery had ended. So... There was a small opportunity for a few of these children to get an education. And so he wanted to go to school. And so he found out there was a night school. And he would work all day long in the mines, because now he's a little older, all day long in the mines. And then he would get off of work. Mine work was hard work, by the way, wasn't it? Anybody ever work in the mines? I've been in some mines And I really wouldn't enjoy working in a mine personally. But it was very hard work. And they worked all day. And then he would walk to school miles away. And he would go to school for three hours at night because he wanted to read. Children, is that how how excited you are about school? You can hardly wait till school starts. That's the way this boy was. Oh, mother, please, I want to learn. I want to go to school. So he walked to school. Most of you just have to walk to your desk in your house. Some of you may have to be driven in a car a few miles to your classroom. This boy walked miles to school. And the very first thing he ever wrote in his life was the number 18. Because in the mine, he was number 18. And on all his sacks from the mine, he had to write that number. And he had to be taught how to hold a pencil how to put a straight line, how to make the eight sign, and what that even meant. They said, 18, what does that mean if you don't know how to count, right? That's what he was taught. 
So he wanted to learn to read and write. And over time, he said, Mother, I want to go to school in the daytime. They have a school. There's a school that actually starts at 9 o'clock in the morning and goes all day long. I want to learn more. So he talked to his supervisor in the mine. They said, if you come in early, because, I mean, it didn't matter if it was day or night. It's always dark in the mine, right? If you come in early and start very early in the morning and you work until 9 o'clock, we will let you off work at 9 o'clock, and then you come back at this time, and then you work late into the night so you can go to school. Oh, he was so excited. He says, I'll do it. So he got off work at 9, but school started at 9, and it wasn't next door to the mine. He had to go miles to school. So he just didn't casually walk. He ran to school because he wanted to be as close on time as he could be. He sat there. He listened to the instructor. He did his assignments. He learned to read. He learned to write. He was learning history. He was learning all these things. He was so excited about learning. And when school was over, his work needed to be done. There was no homework because he didn't have time. He had to run back to the mine to be there on time to go back to work late into the night. Who am I talking about, children? Any of you history books? Very good, Sarah. Booker T. Washington. That little boy with all those disadvantages. Thank you very much. How many others knew that? Wow. I knew there'd be lots of people. That's great. This little boy went from a slave to a professor, to an orator, to an author, and eventually to the advisors of the Republican presidents of the United States of America. And you know what? In his entire biography, there's an autobiography and there's many biography on this man. And in none of those did I ever find him saying or anyone writing about him saying or his mother saying, it's too hard. It's too hard. God has a mission for each of us like he did Booker. And even though he came from disadvantages, even though he came from a single parent home and poverty and slavery with every strike against him, He fulfilled his greatest potential because he would not allow himself to think how hard his life was. The second person I want to talk about is also a boy. He was conceived out of wedlock. That means his mother became pregnant before she was married. Eventually, he did have a stepfather, but they also lived in, this little boy also lived in poverty. The stepfather had sons, and so this boy had stepbrothers who were very mean to him. Very mean to him. They would threaten him. They would intimidate him. They would make fun of him. What do you think this little boy did? Mommy, mommy, mommy. They're always making fun of me. Mommy, they're picking on me. Mommy, no. No, he never did that. We're told that this little boy, even though he was treated with contempt... Even though he was being treated mean by his stepbrothers, by other children, even though he was intimidated and threatened, he never contended for his rights. You know what that means, children? What does it mean to contend for your rights? Yes. Not to be mean back, yes. And it means that... It's not my turn. I did the dishes yesterday. Mother, that's just not fair. It's she should have done it. I did it last week. That's contending for your rights. Have you children said things like that? It's not my turn. It's not fair. This isn't fair, mother. This little boy never did that. His mother taught him. Notice the parallels. What Booker's mother taught him and what this mother teaches her little boy. She taught him to be obedient, to respect others, to love his parents, and to be cheerful in his duties. So even though he got more work than his stepbrothers, she taught him to be respectful, to be obedient, and to be cheerful in his duties. This little boy's life was developed... His character was developed through temptations, poverty, and adversity. 
How do you like that recipe? What is it? Temptations. You all like temptations? Oh, good. Here comes the temptation. I just love temptations. Of course we don't like temptations, do we? But we fall for them, don't we? Temptations. Poverty. And adversity. Not a very pleasing recipe for life, is it? But it's the very thing that helped this little boy develop the character that God wanted him to develop. Do you see the parallel between Booker T? It was very similar. The conditions that he went through was what developed his character to become the full potential of the mission God had for him. God has a mission for each one of us. So children, who is the second little boy? Who? Very good. Dominic, you said that? Very, right on. How many people knew it was Jesus? Okay, because these are direct quotes right out of Scripture and the Desire of Ages. Okay? So are we now feeling really good about how hard our lives are? Uh-uh. I hope not. The third child I'd like to speak of this time we're going to talk about a little girl. Now, we've, we've talked about Jesus 2,000 years ago, and we've talked about Booker T 160-some years ago. Now we're going to bring it right up to our generation, right? Right here, modern America, progressive nation, world-leading nation. This little girl grew up in a lower middle-class home. You know what that means? Lower middle-class you have the very wealthy, you have the very poor, and middle class is everybody in between. But instead of being at the high end, they were at the low end of middle class, above poverty, but not really wealthy, not really having anything extra, just getting by in life. In fact, this little girl's family only had one car. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands how many cars are in your household, but we do know single people who have two and some three cars, but they can only drive one at a time. So here this this family had one car. The father in the family, now we have a two-parent home. The father in the family, two-parent biological family, okay? So we're, we're moving along here. This daddy traveled in his business by car. And sometimes he'd be gone a week or two weeks, up to three weeks at a time. That means that when daddy was gone with the car, mother and children had no transportation. This little girl had two brothers. And when their daddy was gone and it was time to go to church on Sabbath morning, if no one offered them a ride, they walked to church. Two, two and a half miles to church. Means they had to get up early. They had to eat a hearty breakfast. They would walk to church. They would go through the services. Then they would walk home before they could have the next meal. Now we take snacks in every half hour to hour. We're feeding children who can't survive, right? These children also walked to the store because if daddy was gone for three weeks, things at home would run out. And so mother would get the children. They would get brown paper bags. They would go to the store three miles away. They would carry home the groceries. Everybody had to carry groceries home. These children, this little girl had daily chores. Her room had to be clean, her bed had to be made, nothing on the floor, nothing stuffed under the bed in the drawers or closets. The toys put away before she went to school. These children had homework that had to be done when they came home from school before they could play. This little girl and her brothers had the privilege of having piano lessons. And for this family, that was quite a sacrifice. Many of you children, your parents are giving you violin lessons, piano lessons, cello lessons, flute lessons, and all the other instruments we see, voice lessons. And your parents are sacrificing. It costs your parents money to do that. 
Do you appreciate it, young people? Or do you say, I don't want to practice today. This is too hard, Mommy. I want to go play. So when they came home from school after the homework was done, piano practice time, and rather than the children given 30 minutes, mother said each piece five times. This mother knew nothing about music, but she did know her children. And she knew that if their will wasn't engaged, they could use up 30 minutes and not accomplish very much at all. So she made sure she heard every one of those pieces five times. And if anywhere in the piece of music that they were stumbling, she'd say, play this. And she, all she knew was between this black line and that black line. Because she said, where, where are you at? Right here. Okay, between this black line and that black line, you play that five times. So that you can learn to do it right. Then you play the whole piece five times. Oftentimes the... Piano practice went much longer than 30 minutes. These children were not allowed to watch cartoons or TV except for 30 minutes a day. And now I know many of you don't even have TV and think, oh, how terrible. But are you letting your children do other things that can be just as distractive or destructive as TV for much longer than that, but oh no, we're not going to put them in front of a TV. I'm not advocating TV, but you know, every family's different. And this little girl wasn't eight in 2013, she was eight in the 60s. So we're going back a little bit in time. These children were not allowed to argue or fight, and they had a regular schedule. Can you believe that? They had to go to bed every night at a certain time. They had to get up at a certain time. And even on Sunday morning, there were no lions or sleep-ins or lay-ins. They were up at the same time. They had to come to the meal table, be ready for the day. They ate what they were served. And if they didn't like it, it didn't matter. They still had to at least eat a little bit of it. And they had chores, as I said, in regular schedule every day. Who can tell me who this little girl is? Boy, you guys are very sharp. Was it because I said she lived in the, was seven years old in the 60s? Probably. And because we talked about cartoons and TV. Actually, I can remember when my parents first got a TV, it was black and white. That was a big deal. A big deal in our home. But you know, I am thankful. And never as a child, in all the circumstances my mother went through, I never heard her say, it's too hard. Essentially, for most of my, much of my childhood, she was essentially a single parent. But she always upheld our father. She respected my father, her husband. She, she loved him. The house would be orderly. We would be clean and neat. The food would be ready when he came home. We were happy. We weren't allowed to argue or fight. And we had regular responsibilities. And even in the 60s, that was beginning to be rare. It's almost extinct now. It was getting rare then. Because all my classmates at school, they went home, they watched cartoons. They didn't have to play the pia- practice the piano because their parents would pay for the lessons anyway, whether they practiced or not. Most of their practicing happened at the lesson. They were having sleepovers and part, slumber parties and doing all these kind of things. And we were viewed as odd. But our parents didn't feel pressure. To be like everybody else. Our parents became Seventh-day Adventist Christians after we were born. They came out of the world. And when they became to know Christ, it was like, wow. And they just consumed truth. I never heard my mother speak those words my entire life. Even at 85 years old, she has never said, it's too hard. She grew up. In the Depression, she was an only child. Her parents divorced when she was a young girl. And in those days, in the 1930s, if that happened to you, you were considered less, a, a lesser desirable part of society. You were ignored. You were looked down on. You were shunned. 
She had a hard life. When they went to school and they didn't, they only had one pair of shoes that would last sometimes for two years. They cut the toes out of the end so their feet could keep growing. They put cardboard in the bottom so they had something to step on. And we have 20 pair of shoes for our children. Maybe 10. Maybe two. But every six months we change them out. Or more often, right? I never heard her say those words. And you know what? That was such a blessing. And I am sad to say that I learned in my adult life because I became comfortable in modern society, American society and I started liking things to go easy. And when things didn't go along the way I wanted, I started saying things like, it's too hard. And unfortunately, I did not role model to my children what my mother role modeled to me. And I had not anything, the, the difficult circumstances she faced. And what she faced is in no comparison to the other two examples we used here today. And so I'm ashamed to say I learned to let this become a part of my vocabulary. And you know what happened? I began to find life unpleasant, life hard. There was no joy. And God spoke to my heart. And so this message is for not just you. It's for me. It's an ongoing lesson, something the Lord has been working in my heart for years, and I have seen the difference it has made in my life, and I know the difference it will make in your life. Life is not too hard, friends. Everything we encounter is there with a purpose to prepare us, our characters, for what is ahead. The most difficult time in this earth's history, more than anything we've ever can even imagine, And we sit back and complain because we only have one car, because we don't have the latest device, the most modern device, because we don't have a dishwasher at home, because we can't have a pet horse. We complain a lot, don't we? We look at what we don't have. We do not appreciate what we do have. And we certainly don't look to Christ the way we should when we are are on the journey to our homeland of heaven. So I want to encourage us, each one today, that we need to have an attitude adjustment That life isn't too hard. Life is exactly what God knows we need to change and prepare our characters. That we can live the mission he has for every one of us. Adult and child. Every one of us. God has a special plan, a mission for us. Not just to be in heaven forever, but a work to do here in this world. In our family, in our community, in our church, in our workplace. And if we do not find, if we do not accept Christ as being a part of that, if we do not hold on to him, take him into our hearts, ask him to go with us, ask him to change our attitudes, ask him to help us when we encounter difficulties, we will not be prepared and we will not be living the mission he has given to us. With God, all things are possible. There is nothing too hard for God. That means there's nothing too hard for us. Nothing. And somehow God has to teach us that between the the luxury and ease and pleasantness of life as it is now that we know and what it's going to be in a very short time. So we should be rejoicing when we encounter difficulties. We should be thanking God that he has a purposeful intention to work our character in the weak areas to prepare us to be faithful with joy to the end. As we learn faithfulness with joy in the presence, through his presence and power. Shall we kneel as we close? And after we pray, remember we have just a couple of minutes to reflect. Father in heaven, We are so thankful. We are so thankful for two things, Lord. First of all, that you have given us such incredible freedoms, such incredible um, easy life here as we know it now, here and now. We know things are going to be very difficult beyond our 
greatest comprehension, worse than anything that has ever been before us, which are horrific. And Lord, we are also thankful that you have preserved your word and you have, through your spirit, led many that go before us to demonstrate a life of faithfulness with joy. Lord, we're here on our knees today because we want to be faithful, but we want to be faithful with joy. We want to find it our highest delight, our excitement, our our joy to do your will, Lord, not our own. And when we encounter difficulties, things we don't like, things we don't want to do, things or, or situations we don't want to be a part of, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you will help us not to run from them, not to complain about them, not to cower from them, not to complain, but we pray that you would give us your joy through your presence and your power to overcome. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.